And you can be seated. Good morning. Okay, a couple of things. While you find the book of Mark chapter 1 and open up there in your Bible or your Bible app, I'm going to need a volunteer this morning. So I'm taking applications. Who would like to volunteer for something to help me out just a few minutes from now? I just see one person pointing, Donovan pointing sideways. I'm going to try to choose somebody who's probably a male in their about 30 to 39, somebody in my contemporary sphere. Anybody want to volunteer right there? I'm thinking maybe Caleb or Chip. Chip put a hand up first. Okay, Chip, we got you. Just a, Stay right there just a few minutes from now. Okay, just a few minutes from now. Everybody thank Chip in advance. Yes, yes, we are all looking forward to finding out what you volunteered for. Uh, I do love camping, and I hope that you will join us at the Camp Quest weekend, uh, a couple weekends from now. I hope that you will join us next Sunday night for our small group kickoff gathering right here at 6 p.m., and uh, if you have uh, not heard about that yet, look inside the bulletin. There is a description of uh, what kind of food you could bring to that event. Come, be with your small group here. If you're looking for a group, let us help you find one. And we will enjoy a good night together. Can we pray for a moment together? Let's bow and go to our Father in Heaven. Father, we thank you for the scripture that we just all participated in reading. And thank you that everyone was willing and that that was so well done. That we could read your word together. And now as we spend a few minutes considering it, and what is going on in the beginning of Mark's gospel, we pray that you would impress on our hearts the person of Jesus and uh, give us obedience to him. Help us from our will and our heart and our mind and into our bodies as whole people to be able to be formed to Jesus Christ with our head and our heart and our hands. And God, help us to raise Christ in our hearts to a place that's higher than any other place and certainly above ourselves as we look to him as our example and our Lord and our guide. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and together we all say amen. So we're beginning a journey for the next two months through Mark chapter 1 and we're going to take it in small chunks most of what we will find in Mark chapter 1 happens over the course of a day. These first few weeks are some prelude material to a day of ministry that Mark will tell us about. A day in the life of Jesus. But before he comes to the day in the life of Jesus, he's going to tell us a little bit about how Jesus came on the scene and what it meant when he showed up. And so today we're going to look at the forerunner of Jesus' ministry his cousin, John the Baptist, and these eight verses that we just read that are packed with symbolism about what was happening in the nation of Israel at that time. So in a minute, we're going to unpack Mark 1 together. But before I do that part uh, of the sermon, I want to share with you an Old Testament story from the Hebrew Bible that might give us some insight into the Hebrew nation, into the Jewish world. So, uh, the Holy Spirit must have given Tim Spencer his communion talk this morning because he talked about Elijah, the prophet, who, going to the mountain, heard the voice of God. And that's right after Elijah had sentenced to death 
a bunch of the false prophets of Baal. And the king in Israel, the northern part of the country at that time, was Ahab, and he was a wicked king who served false gods. When he died, his son, Ahaziah, became king in Israel. And he was, if anything, worse than his father. Let me relate to you a story from the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. And for right now, maybe just listen along as I read this story for you and keep your finger in Mark 1 so that you can be there and be ready to go when we get back. Let me tell you the story of Elijah and Ahaziah in Israel. It starts like this. After Ahab died, uh, Moab, this nation that were neighbors with Israel, rebelled. And Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So the son of this evil king that followed these pagan gods falls through the latticework in his room. Now, latticework usually isn't a flooring material. It's a wall material. So we assume that he fell through his own wall. Now, what kind of a king does that? Probably one in a drunken stupor. What we immediately have a picture of, the first time that we're introduced to this king, is that he's the son of a pagan god worshiper, and he seems to be incompetent, and probably a drunk. And he falls through the lattice work and he injures himself terribly. And so he sends off for word from a prophet to find out whether or not he's going to recover. His reign is potentially going to be very short. And because he's a king in Israel, he has musicians who can play with him at his beck and his call. And it does not say this in 2 Kings 1, but we have to imagine that a king who probably likes his drink and his entertainment might have had his musicians come in and play for him to comfort him. And you know, if they did and they sang from Israel's book of Psalms, they might have sang Psalm 2. It was a psalm that a lot of the kings liked to hear because it was a reminder that the king in Israel was called God's son, which is an important title. And so here we have Ahaziah sending off for word of whether he will recover. And the text says, Go and consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Now, you may be new to church and to reading the Bible, and that's okay, because I'll explain what that means. And if you're not new, if you've read the Bible a few times through and been here for a few years, you probably already have shivers. The king in Israel has sent off for word of whether he will recover from his drunken stupor fall, so we presume, to a god called Baal Zebub. It's not the name of the god of Israel who calls him his son. It's the name of a god of the Philistines. It's the name that in Mark chapter 3, when the Jewish Pharisees, leaders in Israel, in Jesus' time, want to insult him with the greatest insult they can come up with. Because he's a miracle worker. They say it's by the power of Beelzebub that he drives out demons. 
it is by the prince of demons that he is a miracle worker. This is who the king of Israel sends to. And so the story goes like this. On the way, God tells Elijah, go out and meet these men and ask the messengers of the king, is it because there is no God in Israel that you send messengers off to this pagan God? The messengers go back to Ahaziah and they say, along the way, we met this real weirdo in the desert. He told us, to come back to you and tell you you will not recover. And why did you send to Beelzebub? Is there no God in Israel, the God who calls you his son? And the king gets a troop of 50 men and sends them back out to find this wild man in the wilderness. Now why do you need 50 men to go question one guy? It means you intend violence against him. And before he sends the 50 men, he says, tell me what this wild man in the wilderness looked like. And they said to him, he was dressed in a garment of hair and he wore a leather belt. And the king said, uh-oh. That, I inserted that part. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. And we should read, uh-oh. Elijah, who killed all the prophets of my father at Mount Carmel. Elijah, who has stripped the land of false prophets, so I have to send all the way to a foreign country to find one. Uh-oh. The 50 men arrive. And they call up, supposedly in a mocking voice, Man of God, come down, the king demands to see you. And he says, oh, <laughs> wants to see me now, huh? He says, If I am a man of God, fire will fall from heaven and consume you. And it does. And the king, because he's an arrogant king and consumed with his own power, sends 50 more men. They come to the man of God in the wilderness and say, you know, the same thing, Man of God, come, the king demands that you come. If I'm a man of God, fire will fall, and it does. Now the king has been insulted and deprived of a hundred of his best troops. So he sends 50 more because he's a smart king. And when this commander of the 50 men gets to Elijah in the wilderness, he fell on his knees and said, Man of God, I beg you, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go with him. And this time he goes to the king and he says, the word hasn't changed, you're going to die. And the king dies. Rough times in Israel. So when Mark wants to write his gospel, he knows that the readers of the Hebrew Bible know all these stories by heart. And he packs the beginning of his gospel with clues and references to stories like this one. And the reason that he says things like, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is because he wants the people to remember that formerly you had kings who were called the Son of God. 
in Psalm 2. And it didn't work out so well. They were arrogant and corrupt. They were drunk all the time. They worshipped false gods. The kingdom didn't work. And so the good, the good news about Jesus immediately from the first line is politically subversive. It's important when we read the Bible to recognize that all of Scripture is political, but it's not partisan. Because there's one king in heaven, and anyone who rules on earth with his delegated authority is responsible to him. And so when we see the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, there are shots taken in this verse at both Israel and Rome. Let's unpack a couple of them, because this is politically subversive. The word good news, and for some of you this is review, but that's okay. The Greek word euangelion, where we get the word evangelize, it was used about the ascension of the Roman emperors. We've heard a story before in this church about the Roman Emperor Vespasian. There's another one named Octavian who also had a good news preached about him, a euangelion, and they told it about his birth story. They said when Octavian was born, when that God came into the world, it was a euangelion. And so they called him in the same breath, Octavian the emperor, a god and said it was good news, and they said it about his birth story. This is what's happening with Mark about Jesus. It's a shot at the Roman Empire. The word Messiah is well known for the Hebrew Bible readers. In Greek, it's the word Christos, where we get the title Christ, Jesus the Christ. It means the anointed one. It was used of such people in the Old Testament as Saul and David and Solomon in Israel. They were anointed to be king. And it was also used of Cyrus the Persian. When God said, I am going to anoint Cyrus to rescue my people from Babylon. But the people had hoped for a greater Messiah. One that would truly bring justice and set all things right. A true son of God. And the Son of God term in the Hebrew Bible is used of uh, the kings in Israel like Psalm 2 that we've mentioned, but it was also used in the Greco-Roman Empire as a title for the Caesars in Rome. This verse is just packed with shots to the left and the right. It's political, it's not partisan. All will fall before the reign of the king in heaven. And then Mark continues. Uh, uh, verse 1 could have been uh, Mark's whole document, and it would have shaken the world of his day. But he continues. He says in verse 2 and 3, As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is actually a compound quote. Mark pulls from at least two and probably all three of these Old Testament citations that I've put on the screen. In Exodus 23, God had said to Moses and the Israelites, See, I'm sending an angel. Messenger is the same word in the Greek text. Ahead of you to guard you along the way. In Malachi chapter 3, 
that prophet wrote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And in Isaiah 40, the most famous of these prophets, and so the one that gets the citation by Mark, he wrote, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord our God. Let me show you the whole quote from these three places in the Old Testament. Because again, these are politically subversive quotations. The first one, the Exodus quote, comes from the middle of the Exodus story when the great empire of Egypt was being felled by God's ten little plagues. And he allowed his people to walk out free and head towards the promised land. And God said, see, I'm sending my messenger, my angel, to bring you to the place I've prepared. It's a subversive message because God says, I have a place for my people, and it isn't this pagan place. The other quote from Malachi is during the time of the later kings in Judah, when times were hard, and many of these kings, like the one we just read about, were leaving the Lord. I will send my messenger, but look at what else the verse says. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Let's interpret that. You've been longing for God, you've been looking for God, and you've been waiting for God. But be ready because one day he's going to show up. And when he comes, will he find faith in Israel? And Mark is saying, here he is. The last quote from Isaiah says, Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Just like Elijah out there in the desert, somebody needs to be making a level way, a straight way, an easy way, a highway, so that the people who are seeking God can get to him and find him. Because the kings, whether foreign or domestic, We're making it awfully hard for the people to find God. But the good news about Jesus is more than politically subversive. It's religiously subversive. The good news about Jesus is religiously subversive. It will challenge all of the expectations of the religious worshipers of John the baptizer's day. Let me give you an example. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is religiously subversive. And why? In the church of Christ, we've become so used to hearing about baptism that we have forgotten that it's religiously subversive. That it is a statement that says, I need purified. I need to identify with God's work in me because my work is never enough. And in the time when John offered it, the Jews had been offering baptism to the world for several generations. When one person who was not a Jew wanted to become a Jew, the Jews would baptize them to purify them of their Gentile uncleanness. They were like, yeah, icky. We're going to give you a bath. And they would wash them. Now John comes offering the baptism of repentance to the Jews. It's religiously subversive. He says, you claim to be the people of God, but you need purified just as much as the other people. 
It's not only Egypt that was politically corrupt. It was Israel as well. And it wasn't only Egypt and Moab and Edom that were religiously corrupt. It's become Israel as well. The whole Judean countryside, which is clearly a little bit of hyperbole, you know, the, the countryside didn't come to John. A surprising number of people did. They come and they listen. All the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Why do they have to go out? Why isn't he preaching at the temple, the place where God supposedly lives? Because he's in the wilderness, like some prophets we've recently talked about. And he's specifically at the Jordan River, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. This is the site where the tribes of Israel, after they had already passed through one sea, the Reed Sea on the way out of Egypt, now they pass through the Jordan River and God stops the waters and lets them pass through on dry ground to enter into the promised land. It was the place where God had said, you know, I prepared my angel to go ahead of you to take you to the promised land, the place I've prepared. Well, as you come in, you're going to cross through this water. And now the people who are in the land are people who belong in the land. They've been purified by their God, not by anything they could do, but by him and through obedience. And they enter into the place of the promised land. So why does John go back there? Why does he reverse course? This would be like John going back to a place of an early uh, American revolutionary meeting, like a the, like the pub in New York City where some of them would sit and meet and talk or the place in Philadelphia where they had one of the Continental Congresses and going back to a place that's historically significant to the people to say we need to write a new document we need a new constitution we need a fresh start John says religiously to them we need to enter into the promised land again we need to be purified by God again we have become the people in the land that are a pestilence to God. And he needs to do something about it. So confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. All right, Chip, you ready? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, Chip, Chip, Chip. Everybody, this is my friend Chip. Welcome him. Come on up, Chip. Come on right, right up here. Okay. I'm just going to play a little video here. It should stay silent. It's just a little silent video. Um, oh, yeah, good. Pestilence. Oh, here, this is for you. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> you don't have a shellfish allergy, right? No. Okay, good. No. Okay, you can use that. Yeah, no, I don't. No? Okay, all right. I immediately regretted it once I realized what scripture we were coming up on. Yeah, well, that's why I picked a guy between 30 and 39, one of my own friends. I'm not actually between 30 and 39. I'm actually 39, so I'm not 31 to 38. So I think I'm disqualified. You want me to send you back and pick Foshi? <laughs> <laughs> so um, Chip and I are going to take a little communion together. Um, and remember, the word communion doesn't mean Lord's Supper. We're not being irreligious here. It just means in common, koinonia, right? So we've got a, a couple of special elements here. Uh, <laughs> I even use these little cups. That's really fun. So we've got some prophetic food because the church always needs uh, a couple of good prophets around. <laughs> How's your stomach? It's as good as it's going to get. You have breakfast yet? <laughs> nope, this okay. is first. So. Okay, good. 
So we, I'm not ruining breakfast at all. <laughs> we have here uh, a very special, highly uh, protein, crunchy treat. These are famous Oaxacan Mexican grasshoppers uh, covered in adobo, which is a spicy powder. So this is actually much, much better than what John the Baptist ate. Go ahead and get this open. Go ahead and get that open right now. <laughs> and what, I, what I'm hoping that you will help me do, uh, besides you know, eating these, which that's an important part, but just describe a little bit uh, after you taste them and eat them to everybody sort of what you're tasting and what it's like, okay? Okay, my Are face you ready? will probably tell the entire story now, here. I'm, I'm with you here, yeah. right? Because I stand with my friends. All right, you ready? Yep. All right, one, two, three. Bottoms up. Yep. Woo. Need a little water? <laughs> Not really that bad, right? I've had worse things that I've put in my mouth before, so. Did good. you get any juice? No, thankfully. Completely okay. dry. Okay completely dry thankfully I've had that happen before not today I'm sorry it's all right okay so what was that like what did you taste what did you feel um I feel like I'm really looking forward to lunch now something that tastes a lot better um it was crunchy and then it turned to powder like very quickly Mm. so that was not pleasant not pleasant no I rather liked it I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) Um, can you picture John out there in the wilderness eating locusts, eating something very like this? These aren't the same ones uh, from there, but kind of like this. What would, what would ever cause you to do such a thing? I would have to have been inspired by God. I'll just put it that much. <laughs> yeah. um, you're actually a, a hunter. You're a sportsman. You gather from the land. When you take some wildlife, uh, you ever think about where it came from and how it was provided? Absolutely, absolutely. You want to say anything about that? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look back to just the very beginning, these were given to us for us to rule over and to name, and you know, us to name, but Adam to name, and absolutely. I mean, these are these are blessings from God for yeah. sure. And as the video behind us that's been playing, people have been watching shows. They can be a pestilence. Uh, they can really wipe out an uh, entire. A nation's worth of grass and their produce, their vegetation. This video that we're showing right now is from the Planet Earth 2 series, the BBC released. And if you want to go watch it on your own, it's easy to find on YouTube. Uh, there's a very, um, very well-spoken British man narrating behind this the whole time, but we had our own thing to do here. And they can come in, this was in Madagascar, and they can wipe out uh, in the number of millions and millions all of the plants and the vegetation. And so here you've got uh, a sign of judgment that can also be a, a food source. It's very interesting, very, uh, very interesting kind of uh, situation. Okay, so we got one more food. I'm for still you, I'm finding little pieces of this in my yeah, mouth. It's well, not yeah. pleasant. Got a leg or whatever. Okay, so I've got a treat for you now, and this is something else God's also provided. So we've got here some honey. Okay, this is another food of the land, something that people don't cultivate something that people don't really earn. Now we do, uh, but in John's time, when he ate locusts and honey, he was harvesting God's wild, uh, his, his neighborhood market, right, was God's nature. Okay, go ahead and enjoy the honey. It's pretty good. Not bad, right? 
better. Much better? Okay. All right. Pleasant. Any, any last comment to make? About I wish it? I would have mixed the two together. It probably would have made it a lot more pleasant. Oh, like a dipping sauce. Yes. Maybe I that's imagine what that. I did. imagined okay. it. Exactly. Thank Chip. Let's just thank Chip. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. <clears throat> Love you very much. I knew that he would still talk to me uh, even after we had done that. So uh, as we're kind of bringing this home, let me make sure that you understand the point of the illustration of eating the food because it is not just about doing something gross or silly in church. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Because I told you the story of Elijah the Tishbite, you ought to understand as soon as you see that line, like the Hebrew Bible reader would understand, that for Mark, he is giving you a clue. This is a true prophet of God with authority. He is wearing the wardrobe of Elijah. It's like you had a man come in and was saying things about political reform in America and he was wearing a stovetop uh, hat and, and you go, oh, Abe Lincoln, right? Or he was wearing the white powdered wig of George Washington and you knew who it was. He's wearing the clothes of a prophet, and he's eating the food of the wilderness, which is God's kitchen. And all of these elements, the, the camel's hair clothing and the leather belt that he wears and the locust that he eats and the honey represent things that are provided by God that have two meanings. And the first meaning is they are meanings of judgment. That God has something subversive to say and it will overthrow the current values of our hearts. Like the locusts could swarm into the land and decimate the crops. Like the plague that ravaged Egypt in Exodus 10. The Jews were both permitted to eat the locusts and they saw them as a sign of judgment. And when they were promised that God had a place prepared for them, that he was leading them to God throughout Scripture, time and again says it will be a place where there is honey because the Lord provides. And so from Exodus 3, see, it's the same story. It's embedded in their one cultural narrative. God says, I'll take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And John the wild man, wearing the clothes of a prophet and eating the food of a prophet, standing in the wilderness, the place of a prophet, says to the sons and daughters of Israel, longing for reform in their world, there's one path to religious and political reform, and his name is Jesus. And he says it this way in verses 7 and 8. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in at least these three ways, he says, I may be a prophet in the likeness of Elijah, but he is greater. He's more powerful. He says, I'm not even worthy to be his servant and be like his, his valet or whatever and you know, put his clothes on and take his clothes on. I couldn't be a butler in his house. And then finally he says, I'm giving you this baptism that you thought was only for pagan people. But it's nothing compared to what he will call you to and what he will do in you when he pours out his Holy Spirit. 
Tradition tells us that the Gospel of Mark was given to Mark by Peter. We don't know for sure if that's the case. But an aging Peter may very well have sat down with his young friend and said, write these things down before the world loses them and before I get too old and forget them. And isn't it interesting that when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem to give his first gospel sermon centered on Jesus preaching, He started off by saying, now we are not drunk as you all suppose. We're not like that king in Israel who fell through his lattice work. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. As the prophet Joel said, it would be poured out on the sons and the daughters, on the male servants and the female servants. It's a greater baptism. The one that only Jesus can work. The one that proceeds from his spirit. And over the next two months, as we read Mark chapter 1 together, this person, the Holy Spirit baptizer, the greater one than John, is the one on whom all our hopes are set. We worship him, we hope for him as our true king now and our coming king. Let's stand and worship him. And if you'd like to respond today in baptism or in prayer, come to the front and we will pray with you.